you know, there are a lot of things out there that I don't believe in, but that doesn't mean they're not true. <laughs> Such as? Like crop circles, or the Bermuda Triangle, or evolution. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't, uh, you don't believe in evolution? No, not really. <laughs> you don't believe in evolution? I don't know, it's just, you know, monkeys, Darwin, you know, it's a, it's a nice story. I just think it's a little too easy. <laughs> too easy? Too... <laughs> the process of every living thing on this planet evolving over millions of years from single-celled organisms is, is too easy? Yeah, I just don't buy it. <laughs> uh, excuse me. <laughs> Evolution is not for you to buy, Phoebe. Evolution is scientific fact, like, like, like the air we breathe, like gravity. Oh, okay, don't get me started on gravity. <laughs> Hi, welcome to the Flawed Theology Podcast. I'm Phil. And I'm Susie. And we're asking the question, if your theology were wrong, wouldn't you want to know? All right, welcome back, everybody. This is going to be part two of our conversation with Lars and we are going to dig into some additional topics around the idea of Earth origins. We're going to talk about young Earth creationism and really why it's not possible scientifically or otherwise. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the difference between young Earth creationism and intelligent design. And then a couple of things that just Lars wants to talk about. So it's a really fun conversation. And we hope that you enjoy part one. And we hope that you'll enjoy part two. All right, so we want to continue our discussion. We're going to talk a little bit about young earth creationism. It's probably your biggest topic that you are interested in. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mentioned last time the rage learning that I engaged in when I found out that it wasn't true. And, you know, if it was just a passing fad seven years on, I'd probably be into something else. But no, I still actively and happily engage discussion with young earth creationists and with people who want to understand what's wrong with young earth creationism uh, in the answer stances of Genesis group we mentioned last time, right. because of young earth creationism, uh, I've actually learned probably a lot more science than I ever would have uh, had I gotten a normal science education through <laughs> high school. Yeah. Because, That's really ironic. Yeah, because I wanted to make up for lost time. Now I have at least conversational familiarity, like even with actual professionals in the field. There's a great YouTube series, and we can link to it in the show notes, called How Creationism Taught Me Real Science. And it's someone with a very similar story where being once duped by creationism, he now goes through all their claims, examines them carefully, pulls out scientific references, and makes a video essay addressing each one with the most steel man version of the creationist claim that he can right at the start. Oh, that sounds really interesting. I think most people listening know what young earth creationism is. But let's talk a little bit about it. Like, what are the main premises of young earth creationism that are kind of the foundational things that people should know about it? Sure thing. Obviously, we don't want to misrepresent people that we disagree with. Otherwise, we're not really disagreeing with them. We're disagreeing with our own minds. Right. With a straw man. Right. As I see it, the three main tenets of young earth creationism are, one, that the earth and the rest of the universe, usually, although some will make exception for that, was supernaturally and specially created in more or less its current state no more than about 10,000 years ago. Usually the exact number is 4004 BC, October, if you want to be very specific, according to the chronology of one James Usher made in the 1600s. The reason he was making it is because he wanted to predict the return of Christ, and he had the balls to predict a time outside his lifetime, unlike many modern counterparts mm -hmm. who are happy to cash in on rapture anxiety and <laughs> predict their Christ's return within their lifetime. And shockingly enough, every time they've gotten it wrong. Uh, but yes, James Usher predicted that Jesus would come back in 1997. That didn't happen. Yeah, I'm not sure why young earth creationists are so, uh, <laughs> so hung up on his particular chronology, since the entire reason he came up with it is, well, factually wrong, but that is the date they usually go for. Mm-hmm. The next major claim, of course, along with this is that all the organisms that we see on and in and around Earth today, their ancestors were created 
supernaturally and separately with no biological relationship to each other on the various days of creation, some for plants, some for animals, and some for humans. So any physical appearance similarity between species would be purely because God decided to make them look alike, not because they're actually related. Well, that was the stance of young earth creationists up until about the 70s. And at least among the broader public, even until the 90s. But modern young earth creationists will be at least a little more circumspect and say that God created some smaller number of kinds, as they put it. Oh, kinds. And then the arc and then evolution. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, and that modern species are the diversified descendants of these kinds that were specially created. So there is some amount of shared relationships. For example, they will usually point to uh, what biologists refer to as the group Canidae or the dog kind that includes dogs, wolves, foxes, coyotes, and a few other canid species. Uh, now, these cannot all breed together, even though they usually say that is one of the criteria for defining a kind. They also say, well, sometimes members of the same kind can't breed together. Now, real biologists will, of course, agree, yes, these do all share common ancestry, but the creationists will stop it right there. They'll say, nope, now these here are related to each other and not to anything else. And these over here are related to each other and not to anything else. Oh, that's fascinating. But of course, a real biologist will say, well, those groups you just mentioned are also united by certain traits that they all have inherited from their common ancestor. So the way a biologist would see it is a branching tree with one trunk at the bottom, at the very, very bottom. Yes, that is the, the vast tree of life where all life on Earth is ultimately descended from some common ancestral population living sometime between three and four billion years ago. Right. And so the current young earth creationist view is that instead of this one long tree with one trunk, you have lots of little bushes all over the place, right? Yes. Like a forest. They like to call it the orchard. <laughs> oh, they have a name for <laughs> yeah. this. Okay. They do have a name. So yeah. I'm thinking back to my Sunday school days in the nineties and those little cartoons that they would show us about creation and they would pop into existence like a lion and Adam would name the lion and it'd be a polar bear. And it was nothing like what you're describing. No, no. They've had to get a little more sophisticated, acknowledge some amount of evolution, which as we discussed in the last episode, they'll call microevolution, even though any biologist would call it super hyper mega ultra macro evolution on steroids, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, given the timelines involved. Right. But they don't like to use the word macroevolution to describe it. Mm -hmm. So finally, their third main tenet is, of course, a global flood. The Bible in Genesis chapters six through nine, I believe, describes the story of Noah, who was warned by God that he was going to flood the earth due to the corruption of humankind, and that Noah had to take on board two or seven, depending on the type or trends or version of the story of animal. And this would be the ancestors of today's species. Now, because it does give certain criteria for the animals brought on board, it says everything that has the breath of life in it, which creationists take to mean basically vertebrates that live on land. So insects don't count. Vertebrates that live in the water don't count. Plants don't count. Fungi don't count. Only vertebrates that live on land count. So the dimensions given for the ark in the Bible are such that there's absolutely no way to bring representatives of every species on board. So by invoking this super mega hyper ultra evolution, they bring up to, as I believe I mentioned last time, uh, 1,398 kinds on board the Ark uh, and just assume that everything else managed to survive just fine, or at least enough of them to repopulate the earth. Right. For the plants, they say that they must have just floated around in like mats, right? Well, that's also how they say a lot of the non-breath of life animals survived, that they managed to hitch a ride on these floating vegetation mats. Now, these are real things. Yeah. Uh, in fact, that's how come there are monkeys in South America, because right. they presumably hitched a ride on one of these floating vegetation mats uh, about 30 million years ago. Young Earth creationism also would stipulate that it's six 24-hour days, not that when it says day, it's just some unknowable nebulous period of time. Like, you know, there's some people they'll say, oh, well, maybe the days actually mean a year. And then they use that verse later in the Bible to say, well, a day mm, with the yeah. Lord is like a thousand years. And so, okay, mm -hmm. maybe that's not really literal days, but young earth creationism right. holds to six 24 hour days, right? Six 24 hour days starting, like I said, usually in 4004 BC, but the most they'll ever agree to is about 10,000 years. And in the case of the global flood, there is the ark that Noah built. On board this ark were the representatives of the kinds, the ancestors of today's species. And somehow they managed to survive for a year with only eight people crewing the boat and uh, nobody dying. And one window. 
Yes. And no gas exchange. No, no gas exchange. No filtration. Yeah. yeah. They somehow managed to keep enough food for all the herbivores and carnivores. Get rid of the excrement. Yep. Yeah. And and of course, you know, the, the methane from that poop clearly didn't get ignited or anything like that and blow up everything. Right. <laughs> and you could breathe it with no issues either. Yeah, so it's, exactly. No problems at all. It's like being crop dusted for 40 days and 40 nights. Yeah. It sounds awesome. Yeah. It's telling that the petting zoo that they have at the Ark Encounter requires more than eight people to take care of the animals there. And there aren't nearly that many of them. And I bet you they have HEPA filtration yes. and all <laughs> kind of stuff in there. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Besides the ridiculousness of the Ark, what are some smoking guns that we can just point to and say, this is why young earth creationism is impossible? There are so many. I'll give you two of my favorites. One year ago, my family and I were taking a trip to Hawaii. The Hawaiian Islands are part of an island chain that is built by volcanoes. They are still erupting today, and they have been erupting for a very long time. If you look at maps of the ocean floor, you can see a straight line of island or former islands going away from the Hawaiian island chain, going northwest, and then taking a sharp angle, going even more directly north, indicating a time at which the tectonic plates change direction. The reason why there is this island chain at all is because under under the Hawaiian islands, there is a what's known as a hot spot in the Earth's mantle, where there's an increased amount of heat, and magma forms more readily than in other places, and it erupts as a volcano. As the tectonic plates move over this region, the hotspot stays in the same place. So you have a series of eruptions that build islands over time. And also over time, those islands eventually erode back into the sea. This has been happening for quite some time, right? You can see a whole chain of seamounts under the ocean leading directly away from the Hawaiian Islands as we see them now. It's like a conveyor belt moving over that hotspot. Yeah, it's a conveyor belt. And, and we can measure the rate of movement and it's something like somewhere between three and six centimeters per year. So to travel the entire width of the Pacific Ocean, as it does, would take a very long time, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe creationists could posit that somehow it moved faster in the past. In fact, many of them do. They posit that the tectonic plates move much faster. This would, of course, generate ridiculous amounts of heat and completely melt the plates. But let's go ahead and grant them that the plates could have moved faster in the past. Yeah. That's just one line of evidence, though. Scientists can date volcanic rocks using radiometric dating, where radioactive material gets trapped in a rock as it cools. And when the rock cools down, that basically ends the transfer in and out of radioactive or other material. It's solid rock. So they can then measure the radioactive elements in the rock and the elements that they turn into over time through radioactive decay and determine how long it's been since that rock cooled. They can measure the age of the seamounts and the current Hawaiian islands. And wouldn't you know it, when you measure the age and measure it against the current rate of movement of the tectonic plate over the Hawaiian islands hotspot, you get the same age. Now, unless God is super deceptive, there's just no way you could have these two things give the same age completely independent of each other, unless they are in fact that age. Right. You would have to have radioactive decay have sped up in the past and the plates were moving faster. Yes of every different kind of element that they're measuring. Yeah, so every element, yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, that's crazy. There, there are many different kinds of radioactive dating or radiometric dating. So again, unless God sped these up independently at each their own rate to give the same different age... Yeah, yeah. Then you'd, of course, have the problem of, you know, discordant dates, but you don't. You have concordant dates. And as yeah. I mentioned earlier, the rocks moving, the, the, rather the entire Earth's crust moving over the mantle like this would cause ridiculous heat from the friction involved. But separate from that, so does radioactivity. Radioactivity produces heat. It's how they keep Mars rovers warm. Well, if you sped up the radioactivity, you would, in the very words of ICR, when they actually tried to find some loophole in uh, radiometric dating, ICR, for those who aren't familiar, is the Institute for Creation Research. It is one of the larger creationist propaganda organizations. They tried to find some loophole in radiometric dating to say, well, no, the Earth really is only six to 10,000 years old. And their findings came up with, and I will quote them here from their RAKE project, stands for Radioactive Isotopes in the Age of the Earth, on pages 761 and 762, if you want to go check me. (laughs) Oh my God. That's a lot of pages. (laughs) It's long, and it basically comes down to this. If God caused a period of accelerated decay during the Genesis flood, it would have generated a massive pulse of heat in the Earth. 
the rate group estimates that the heating would have been equal to that produced by about half a billion, that's 500 million years of decay at today's rates. Now that's actually only one ninth of the Earth's actual age, but let's go ahead and grant it for them. But it would have been generated over the period of only one year of the Genesis flood. The heat would have melted the crustal rocks many times over, unless there was some mechanism for simultaneously removing it quickly. If you go on to read it, the only mechanism they describe is perhaps a relativistic bubble in which there was a mysterious warp in space time that got caused to carry <laughs> the heat away from the earth. Now, of course, we know this miracle. didn't happen. Oh yeah, an absolute miracle. But we also know that didn't happen because it would also create a severe redshift in these stars that we observe at that distance. So all the stars 4,500 light years away would have an ever expanding bubble of space time around them that would, as it passes over them, rapidly warp their light significantly to the red and then pass by and then we'd see normal light again. We should be able to observe this today, but we don't. Holy crap. So again, hmm. we know that didn't actually happen. <laughs> I mean, that's so cool that you can just point to something and say, we know this didn't happen because X. Yeah. Just to reiterate, those findings were from a Christian organization? A young earth creationist propaganda organization. Their entire business model is to take donations and try to find ways to make young earth creationism seem plausible. And they found this out. This is their words that I just quoted for you. So they rambled on for 740 something pages to come to the conclusion of, oh shit, it's not true, but- But God miracled it anyway. But yes. we're going to keep on pressing on anyway. So they upheld their young earth creationist beliefs? Of course they did, because they can't admit that they're wrong. <sighs> oh, okay. That just blew my mind. Well, and radiometric dating is one of those things that they accept, but only for certain things, right? Yes. Radiometric dating is great for this, but then when you go and use the same principle for crustal rocks or meteorites or whatever, mm -hmm. oh, no, 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 that it doesn't work for that. It only works for this thing that I found that shows yes. that it was 6,300 years old or. Well, no, that's too old for them. Yeah, yeah. They will accept, for example, carbon-14 dating, which a lot of people have heard of. That's a type of radiometric dating that works on organic material. They will accept that for biblical artifacts to you know establish them as taking place during the timeline of the Bible. And they will happily accept that up to about 4,500 years ago, at which point they say, oh no, that was the flood. Everything is totally off after that. So clearly these numbers that can go all the way out to around 55,000 years by the latest calibration curves are wrong. And there's literally no reason for them no. to even posit that, except that it impinges on their beliefs. Correct. Yeah. There's no precedent for it. It is really funny, the the contortions they will go through. Yeah, it really is like mental gymnastics. And I never, I never realized, you know, you don't notice this stuff when you're in it yourself. I always thought I was so well-versed in creationism and had an explanation for everything, you know, and then the more you learn about the gymnastics that you have to do to, to justify what you're saying, you're like, oh, well, I was just straight talking out of my ass. Like, <laughs> I can't believe I ever told somebody that with actual conviction. You're like, <laughs> oh, I know. Me too. I, I tried arguing for young earth creationism exactly once on the internet and I got my ass handed to me so fast it was still hot. So... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so like that that's that's one of my favorites because Hawaii, you can see that the islands are a chain. You can see that they go under the ocean. And if you just measure it, the distance of the entire island chain going under the water and the distance that Hawaii moves every year, we get an age. And that age yeah. matches the age you get by using radiometric dating completely independently of that. Well, one thing that that I've always had in my mind about young earth creationism, and we don't have to talk about this for a long time, but the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. We know about the crater and we know about the devastation it should have caused. And if the earth is only six to 10,000 years old and there were people on it the entire time, how do they reconcile that? The only thing I saw on one website was that they were saying, well, it was actually a volcano. And then I'm thinking, but what about all the iridium? That doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, they also are ignoring the even larger craters that are found elsewhere in the world, such as in Sudbury, Canada. As with many things, if they can, they will just ignore it. But if they have to get into craters, they'll usually say that the impacts on the earth mostly occurred during the time of the flood as well. That was convenient. Yeah. Why? Why would a bunch of asteroids? Well, you know, judgment on the earth, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, if oh, you, okay. In Revelation, there's plenty of that stars falling from heaven. All right. I'll grant it. They say that judgment on the earth included meteor impacts, even though, yes, the Bible doesn't say anything about that at all. But they'll, they'll be happy to say that they all occurred during the time of the flood. Of course- just as with the radioactivity or the movement of the tectonic plates, that produces heat. You know, when you have something hot enough to literally vaporize the rock that it hits and the rock that it's made of, that's a lot of heat. Yeah. And since there are at least 10 impact craters on Earth with a diameter of greater than 100 kilometers, oh 
jeez. That's a hell of a lot of heat. <laughs> You have another one here listed about our God. This is pretty detailed, but it's awesome. If you can try yeah. to explain it in a, in a way that most people can understand. I'll do my best. Um, but you don't have to like lower your freak flag or anything. You can let, <laughs> let the nerd flag fly. That's oh, why yeah. we have I, you I'm here. a huge nerd. And I, yeah. I like this one partly because it doesn't get much attention. I've been doing the counter creationism thing for a while now. And this is not one I've actually seen publicized much. So, you know, here you go. You may be hearing about this one for the first time. So the elements that make up the matter around you are written into the periodic table based on their chemical properties. As scientists were trying to work out what elements things are made of, one of the ones that was a bit confounding was argon. Uh, it had the behavior of a noble gas, meaning it does not react with many other things. And yet its atomic weight was greater than that of potassium, which was the next lowest atomic weight. So if they were just organizing by atomic weight, potassium should come before argon. That doesn't sound like a big deal. It's just potassium is an alkali metal, while argon behaves like a noble gas. And if you were just organizing strictly by weight, they would have expected a noble gas with the weight of potassium and an alkali metal with the weight of argon. This was quite the conundrum because radioactivity had not yet been worked out. Well, an isotope is a variant of an element with a different number of neutrons than another variant. As we mentioned earlier, there is carbon-14 dating. Carbon-14 has six protons, eight neutrons, while most carbon has six protons and six neutrons. The eight neutrons there is not quite a stable configuration. And eventually the carbon 14 uh, will emit an electron turning one of its neutrons into a proton and it'll turn into nitrogen 14. Well, potassium has many different isotopes. One of those isotopes is potassium 40. Uh, it has 19 protons and 21 neutrons. And potassium 40 is not stable. It is radioactive and it will eventually decay into argon 40, which has 18 protons and 22 neutrons. It does this uh, with a half-life of about 1.25 billion years, which incidentally makes it good for radiometric dating in samples that might contain it. Now, the vast majority of the argon in Earth's atmosphere is argon-40, even though the vast majority of argon in the universe as a whole is argon-36, 18 protons, 18 neutrons. This is because most of the argon, 99 plus percent of it, in Earth's atmosphere actually comes from the decay of potassium-40. Now, since potassium-40 decays into argon with a half-life of 1.25 billion years, you can work out that <laughs> it's been quite some time since potassium has been decaying in the Earth's solid bulk. Yeah, it's like three and a half or something like that. 3.6 half-lives, which is enough time for about 92% of the original potassium-40 in the Earth's crust to have decayed into argon-40 by now. So this is one of those things that I've never even seen addressed by young Earth creationists. They don't even mention isotopic abundance much in their literature. But the fact that we have this overabundance of argon-40 when compared to the rest of the universe, it's only about one eight thousandth of the rest of the argon in the universe on average. That is a pretty telling fact that they have to explain and they don't even try. So are you saying there's no way the argon could have come from anywhere else Correct. but Earth? Because in the rest of space, it's argon-36. That's what's created inside stars. Right. The vast majority of argon created in stars is argon-36, uh, but it's about okay. 8,000 to 1 argon-36 to argon-40, which if Earth were fairly young, we would expect to mostly see that same arrangement. So the only place that argon-40 on the Earth could have come from is potassium-40. Correct. Which has a half-life of 1.25 billion years. Yep. And 92% of it has become its daughter material. Yes. Well, wouldn't the younger creationists just say, well, yeah, but it was faster. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they could, but then they run into the same heat problem as they yeah. as they did yeah. earlier. Well, you can't speed up decay artificially. Right. But they, they will just arbitrarily say that God sped up decay. Right. <laughs> and again, run into a heat problem. But that's just using radiometric dating. And so they, they try to find all kinds of holes in radiometric dating. But this doesn't involve any dating. It just involves looking at the ratio of isotopes to each other on the Earth today. So the Earth is a rocky planet. This makes it a lot denser than the gas giants like Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, or Neptune. And as a result, we would expect it to have more metals like potassium or heavier gases like argon on it. 
So we wouldn't necessarily expect to see the same ratio of potassium and argon in Earth as we see in the rest of the universe. However, if the young Earth creationists are correct, then we would expect to see a huge imbalance of radioactive isotopes to stable decay products. This is because all the heavier elements in the universe, those heavier than hydrogen, helium, and a tiny bit of lithium, are created in stars or in supernovae or in cosmic collisions of things like black holes, white dwarfs, or neutron stars. These produce the heavier elements by smashing together atomic nuclei at really high energies and creating heavier elements. So if indeed, as the young Earth creationists insist, there were a huge increase in radioactive decay around 4,500 years ago, then we should see a big imbalance because there would have been the four and a half billion years worth of decay that have actually happened on Earth compressed into a single year and one millionth of that time left to replenish the radioactive elements. But when we look out in the rest of the universe, that isn't what we see. We see the expected balance of various isotopes and elements as we would expect if, in fact, elements had been created since the Big Bang in the methods I mentioned earlier for 13.8 billion years and four and a half billion years for the Earth. Ah, that is a new argument. Never heard that one before. That's a yeah. good one. I feel like we need to like get this published and make you famous or something. <laughs> with, with you heard all- it here first, folks. Yeah, you heard it first on the Flawed Theology podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but no, that's awesome. And the thing I like about these is like they're complex. Yes. It just shows that you can't just easily explain the origins of the universe with God did X, Y, Z. Yeah. And most people that look at nature and the world would say it's amazingly complex. But then at the same time, they'll say God had to have done that. They don't want to learn about how things actually happen. And there is an explanation for how all these things happen, even like something quote unquote, as simple as, you know, photosynthesis or a plant, that's a complex Very much so. thing that happens and you can learn about how it works. But most people, they don't want to do that. They just want easy answers, you know? And, you know, I think that's why you see so many people deconstructing this stuff now, because they're like, they're sick of the easy answers. Mm-hmm. I've dealt with creationists for a while. They want to remain in their ignorance. They want to keep their beliefs and they will simply not hear anything that contradicts it. They don't go through the reasoning because to them that is dangerous and scary. Now you mentioned some of these are pretty complex. Some of them are very much not complex. Uh, if you want to debunk young earth creationism for yourself, go outside on a clear night, look up. And if you know where to look, you'll see a kind of a smudge in the sky. And that is the Andromeda Galaxy. The Andromeda Galaxy is about two and a half million light years away and is one of the few galaxies that is actually blue shifted, meaning it is moving toward our galaxy uh, at several thousand kilometers per second. There you go. You can look outside and see a galaxy two and a half million light years away. Now, unless you want to posit a deceptive God that just made it look like we can see stars orbiting each other in that galaxy and see novas happen in that galaxy, that couldn't have happened if indeed the universe is only 6,000 years old. Well, there you go. You can naked eye disprove young Earth creationism just by looking at the Andromeda galaxy. Well, and there's so much deep space exploration now with you know the telescopes and things that we have, and mm-hmm. they send things out to see this stuff, and yeah. they can measure the distance and the time that it that takes for the light to travel. It's like there's no way that that stuff is six thousand years old because it wouldn't have reached us yet. <laughs> that was the first thing, in fact, that got me to question the reality of young earth creationism. I was 12 and I was at a Christian summer camp and the counselors wanted to really impress us with the majesty of God's creation. And they showed us a picture of the then fairly new Hubble deep field image. It's a image that the Hubble telescope took of an otherwise blank patch of the sky over the course of several months, getting all the light that it could composited all together to make one image. And this otherwise blank area of the sky that would be about the size of your thumbnail at arm's length was chock full of thousands and thousands of galaxies stretching as far back as the Hubble telescope could possibly see. I was only 12, but I did know that light speed was constant and that there was absolutely no way I should be able to see that picture at all if the universe is as old as I had been led to believe. Now, it didn't make me ditch the belief overnight. Uh, I didn't you know, even start questioning my faith until much later, but it's one of those things that stuck in my head as an intractable problem for the things that I'd been taught growing up. The young earth creationist excuse is that either light sped up or the two-way speed of light is different. I don't even understand that argument. There are several different ones. Um, We don't need to go into into them at all. 
right now. That that gets out of That's my wheelhouse. A whole another episode. <laughs> it is. If you want, I mean, we could you can make an entire podcast devoted just to debunking our creationism. That one's a bit out of my wheelhouse. I'm not as well versed in astrophysics as I am in biology and geology. Why not? <laughs> yeah, come on, Lars. <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the um, the common arguments that young Earth creationists oh, yeah. use, and then basically why they are invalid. I mean, I think there's a ton of these. Sure, hit me with your favorites. Yeah, so I watch a lot of young Earth creationist debates, and there's two that I think are most widely used. One is that some scientist, I forget his name, but I'm sure you know it, he uh, sampled some rocks from Mount St. Helens, and he dated them, and they were like millions or billions of years old, except that he knew they had been newly formed like 20 years ago. Uh, yeah, that would be Steve Austin, not to be confused by the, with the pro wrestler of the same name. <laughs> right. um, stone cold. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, this guy is uh, more of a stone cold liar, but you know. <laughs> well played. Thank you. Did you guys plan that? No, absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> I, that was actually on the fly. Um, I can occasionally be witty. It has happened. <laughs> So Steve Austin and his team, Young Earth Creationists, went to Mount St. Helens, which erupted in 1980, and uh, pulled up some rocks from the debris there and sent them off to a radiometric data lab, lab to do potassium argon dating on it, which, as I mentioned earlier, potassium decays to argon with a half-life of about 1.25 billion years. And so it is useful for dating old rocks. Now, this particular lab they sent it to had equipment that was only useful out to about 2 million years, was the lowest age that they could reliably measure. And he knew this when he sent it to them. So right off the bat, it's like trying to measure a football with the football field. It's not <laughs> going to be very accurate. Now, of course, he also didn't take much care to collect it carefully. He just pulled in a trowel, as far as I know, shoved it in a bag and sent it off to the lab. Now, if you want to do good radiometric dating, you want to make sure you have a sample that's uncontaminated and that has only the rock that you're trying to actually date in it. Lava or magma, I should say, as it comes up through the earth, some of it will cool faster than others, even before it erupts. And so you can have what's called a xenocrist or a strange crystal or outside crystal. That's stuff that has crystallized before it erupts. Mm -hmm. And the dates he got back from this lab, they mostly returned dates within about uh, a range of about 300,000 years, but with a wide enough margin of error that zero years could be included in that. There were a few that were higher, and those are most likely measuring the xenocrists in the samples. So long story short, he collected it poorly, sent it to a lab that couldn't measure what he was actually looking for, and failed to report the fact that most of the margins of error included zero years anyway, despite the inaccuracy of the measurement. And what's astonishing to me is that young earth creationists still use this as evidence for young earth creationism. Oh, I know. It's just, it's just amazing. What's worse to me is that even if everything he said was correct, that he had found some major foundational flaw in the process of radiometric dating, do you know how much that would support young earth creationism? Not one bit. It did absolutely nothing to establish that the maximum age of the earth is less than 10,000 years. It just says that these methods that show that it's four and a half billion years old might be wrong. It didn't, mm -hmm. but granting them right. every benefit of every doubt, it doesn't make their case. The only place that that number comes from is just from those genealogies. Correct. They don't have any actually fossil record or anything that's it, that was dated and it comes up that number. Right. It's right. just like, well, the genealogy adds up. So we're just going to say it's this age. When I was at Liberty, they had a wing of the science department that was an ICR Ken Ham display down there. And it looked really nice. Like it was really good. And it looked they so good production values. Yeah. You know, like look like a real museum with actual facts and all that kind of stuff. I wish I could go back and look at it now. And, be, and so I could just like laugh at it, you know, because it seems like like there was nothing factual in it. You just started mm -hmm. with the premise that the earth is 6,000 years old and then you threw a bunch of shit in a glass case. You're hoping no one takes the time to research and look at and they say, oh, well, there's a whole museum that proves that young earth creationism is real mm -hmm. because I saw fossils in a glass case. But, you know, there's no data to support it's it. It's the assumption that the Bible cannot be wrong, that their interpretation of the Bible cannot be wrong. And therefore, no matter what else you may encounter, they're still right because they have the word of God on their side and cannot possibly be wrong. Now, there are certainly some who are knowingly dishonest about it where you can look at their training or their other publications and show that they know the things they're saying are not actually true. But even then, I suspect they justify it to themselves as spreading the word of God by any means necessary. It's like lying for God. I think Martin right. Luther said that's okay. Yeah. 
what's some other ones that you like? I know one of the real popular ones is, well, if evolution were true, why are there still monkeys? Well, to their credit, Answers in Genesis has a page on this and they say, don't use this argument. It's no good. It has nothing to do <laughs> with actual evolutionary theory. Yes, they do have a page of arguments creationists should not use. And that is one of them. That's hilarious. Yeah. At least somebody at Answers in Genesis knows enough about evolutionary theory to understand that common ancestry does not mean a linear progression from one form to another, but that multiple species can be descended from a single ancestral pair. Now, of course, they kind of have to say this with their insistence on kinds. Right. So somebody <laughs> did some fact checking and realized that might not be a very good argument. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> it appeals to people who have a very poor grasp of evolution. Unfortunately, the American education system kind of sucks at teaching people what evolution actually means. So yeah. that plus the popular march of progress graphic that shows uh, something looks kind of chimpanzee-like on one side with a bunch of morphological forms in between that and an upright human holding a spear or sometimes sitting at a computer in the more modern versions. Yeah. <laughs> it gives this idea that all of biology is just leading towards humans. And it's not. Humans are one species among millions. And every species that is not extinct is equally evolved. Literally the only thing that can possibly stop evolution is extinction. So paleontologists found a bone, I think it's a T-Rex bone, that has soft tissue fibers on it that are fossilized. And creationists say, well, look, it can't be that old if there's still soft tissue fibers. Now, I, I know how to rebut that, but I want you to explain it. <laughs> awesome. I have actually spoken in person with Dr. Mary Schweitzer. Uh, she teaches at North Carolina oh, State nice. University. Yeah. And so I have met with her personally uh, because I am interested in eventually becoming a paleontologist myself. Yeah. Um, and I've asked her about this. And she hates the fact that young earth creationists mm -hmm. act like her finds support their ideas. Yeah. <laughs> they don't. But it, it is a little complicated to understand why. Was it a T-Rex bone? It was a T-Rex bone. Okay. Um, and she found that it had medullary bone inside. Medullary bone is something that we see in modern birds when they're about to lay eggs. They build up these extra calcium deposits uh, in their bones, and then they use that to build their eggshells. So she found this medullary bone. Uh, and when she opened it, it had an odor to it and it had a kind of a sponginess to it. And so she took it out and it was still fossilized. It was still very much covered in minerals. So she dissolved the minerals in an acid bath. And what she had left was a pliable material. That's pretty impressive. Indeed, creationists are right. This kind of stuff doesn't usually preserve that well, but that's just it. It doesn't usually preserve that well. The fact that this was a singular finding, not singular, there, there have been a lot more findings of soft tissue preserved now that scientists know what to look for. But the fact that it's rare shows that they are not, in fact, nearly as young as creationists think. We find mammoths with meat. Uh -huh. We never find any dinosaurs with meat. Right, right. And creationists saying, oh, well, obviously it can't be as old as the quote unquote evolutionists say, is using one of their most powerful tools. And that is the appeal to intuition. They make their argument sound a lot more compelling than it actually is. Since the creationists always fail to provide an actual mechanism that says, okay, there is absolutely no way you can preserve uh, collagen fibers as it happens. Well, since they haven't established this, they don't actually have any basis for saying it. It sounds intuitive, but Mary Schweitzer has since done many studies showing that the iron in blood and hemoglobin can act as a preservative agent and, and do what's called cross-linking in the collagen molecules, where basically uh, they are kind of like strings and then they mesh together in almost like a weave and become a very strong, long lasting molecule. That's basically going to stay as it is uh, unless something disturbs it. And as long as it stays underground for 60, 70 million years, Hey, it's still there. Her findings have been validated by many more findings of soft tissue and preserved protein in fossils since then. Some going back as more than 500 million years. It is one of the more compelling sounding ones because it appeals to our intuition. But if you actually look at the claims, it just doesn't add up. The dating of the rock hasn't changed and mechanisms haven't found to preserve the proteins for that long. Yeah. It's a non-starter. It's a non-starter. Yeah. But yes, that one does take a bit of understanding and I'm fortunate to have spoken directly with the person who made that discovery. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That is cool. You did a good job explaining that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Pretty clear. I think one of the other ones that is real common is about um, marine fossils on mountaintops. Yes, that's probably my favorite uh, yeah. of, their, of their common arguments, because again, it appeals to intuition. Well, how else could those fossils have gotten there? Because if you go up to Mount Everest, sure enough, at the very summit, you will find limestone with seashells in it. And you know, if you've already heard a story of a great flood that covered the whole world, that's going to be your first mental connection. It makes a certain amount of intuitive sense. 
But a greater, I should say, a greater understanding of this phenomenon shows that not only is it not evidence for a flood, it is evidence that it could not have possibly been formed in a single global flood. These fossils that they point to are usually sessile, meaning they don't move. They are bottom-dwelling or bottom-found fossils, things like clams, shark's teeth, corals, things that anchor to the ground and stay there or fall to the ground and stay there. So they can't move on their own. Now, when you have a rushing flood, it generally doesn't pick things up from the bottom. It picks things up that are a little higher up that are already flowing. It picks things up off the surface that it's flowing over, but it can't scoop the entire bottom of the ocean up and deposit it. We even see mudslides underwater today. And what happens to them? They don't pick anything up. They bury it. Uh, In fact, some of the best fossils that we find come from that kind of situation where there was a mudslide into the water and it blanketed the ocean floor with thick mud, preserving anything that was stuck underneath it. They found like a trail of trilobites where they were all, or a train of trilobites where they were all uh, nose to tail. It was really cool. So these are, like I said, bottom dwelling fossils that could not get washed up on top of a mountain, even if there was a flood that covered a mountain, but it gets worse. They weren't buried. If they were washed at the top of the mountain, they weren't then buried in sediment because the sediment would settle out first. There's no way to cover them, but it gets worse. These fossils are not found on top of the mountain. They are found in the mountain. They are part of the strata that makes up the mountain. So they already had to be fossilized when the mountain was formed. So they couldn't have been on top of it, but it gets worse. Let's say somehow (laughs) these, these were actually on top of the mountain and they were slapped down by this enormous flood that somehow then layered other mud on top of it and left it there and didn't wash away as the water receded. Well, they're only under there for a year to fossilize something. It needs to be under a tremendous amount of pressure and heat usually for a good amount of time. Now creationists, you know, they never worry about the time it takes to fossilize. They just pretend, oh, it can just happen like that. But (laughs) they also know that it can't happen in a year because, well, it's very obvious. You can just go bury something and dig it up. And a year later, it won't be fossilized even if you buried it in a mud bank. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) So no matter how many parts of this story you grant them, you can't get mountaintop marine fossils. Now, in fact, if you never found any mountaintop marine fossils and the mountains all looked scoured by you know, water and sediment, that would actually be evidence of a global flood. Okay. But it's not what we see. We instead see mountains that are made of fossils. We see the fossils that couldn't have gotten there except by being pushed up from the earth. Okay. Right. So those got there by upheaval of the earth's crust. Yes. Not by a flood. Right. They were already fossilized when the mountain started to go up. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the differences between young earth creationism and intelligent design because they're related but not the same thing. And the basic premise, as I understand it, and you can feel free to correct or add, that basically the easiest explanation is that you look at the world, it appears to be designed, so anything that with design requires a designer. That's the very simplest explanation of intelligent design. What else would you add? I'll go ahead and just read it here from intelligentdesign.org so as not to misrepresent them. They say, the theory of intelligent design holds that certain features of the universe and of living things are best explained by an intelligent cause, not an undirected process such as natural selection. So that statement really does sum up their main focus. They really mostly try to focus on biology because as mentioned earlier, there is this sort of intuition that we have that living things are kind of magical, kind of different from the rest of matter. Uh, But they also do dabble in cosmology and astronomy and uh, even geology a little bit. Anytime where they find something that looks amazing, they chalk (laughs) that up to intelligent design. Uh, Most of their articles are, you know, look at this insert organism here. Isn't it amazing? It must be designed. (laughs) Right. That's basically their entire argument, at least in their popular blogs. Now, if you go into their books or quote unquote scientific literature, (laughs) they'll go into a little more detail. Uh, Most of their arguments revolve around picking some particular biological trait and say, well, look, there's just no way this could have evolved. So it must have been designed. The classic example that you are most likely to hear is that of a structure called a flagellum on many bacterial cells. Uh, Flagellum is basically a string that sticks out from the cell and can be rotated very quickly via what's essentially a molecular electric motor. It is a very cool structure and it does in fact resemble electric motors. It uses a change in electric charge to achieve rotation. 
and it does resemble things that we actually have designed. But the fundamental fallacy in all of these biochemical amazing things that they point out is that function equals design. Design things as humans design them may or may not have function, and things that have function may or may not be designed. We know that some things that are functional are designed, like the whole webcam and microphone and computer setup that we're talking to each other on. But many things that are functional in biology, we have no basis for asserting that they are in fact designed. Now, every single time that they have pointed out some biological trait that they think is designed, such as a flagellum or blood clotting, or a favorite one, of course, is eyes in organisms that have eyes, there has been plausible evolutionary scenarios for how it could have emerged through known evolutionary processes, uh, including but not limited to natural selection, uh, which is the tendency of some organisms to have more offspring than others in a given environment based on variations that are inherent to that organism. So they basically tried to go that route to seem a little more sciencey than Young Earth creationism, where they don't ever rely explicitly on their interpretation of the Bible or the Quran. There are also Muslim intelligent design advocates, um, and I think even some Hindu ones, uh, but they're pretty rare. But they tried to avoid explicitly religious arguments in favor of ones that at least talk about scientific observations. They do that mainly because of the Edward versus Aguilard court case that established that teaching creationism is teaching religion in the public schools and cannot be taught in public schools because it's a separa uh, separation of church and state issue. So in 2005, there was a trial, Kitzmiller versus Dover, uh, in which it was demonstrated very conclusively, even to a conservative George W. Bush appointed judge who rendered the verdict that, in fact, intelligent design is just creationism under another guise. Uh, it's right. still trying to push ideas that are decidedly not scientific because they are not based on data. They don't explain any data. They simply make assertions about it. They don't make any predictions about data, about what should be found in the future. And they don't produce any results. Real science tends to produce results in the real world. And young earth creationism and intelligent design produce none at all, ever. And this is one of the things that I often challenge young earth creationists or intelligent design advocates with. Can you give me a single example of a discovery invention or any other practical result ever achieved based on the assumptions of young earth creationism or intelligent design? And they never can. Well, and this goes to what you were talking about earlier about appealing to people's intuition. Yes. And the one that I always heard growing up was, well, if you take all the parts to a Swiss watch and you just throw them in the air, you could never assume that they're going to just hit the ground and land and reconvene themselves into a Swiss watch. To which I would agree. Well, which is 100% yeah. true, but that doesn't prove that things that occur in the natural world are a Swiss watch. No. Exactly. That's not what evolution is. Right. right. A Swiss watch was actually designed by a person. There's schematics and principles mm -hmm. that go into building a watch that, yes, of course, throwing them against the table is not going to make them come together. So it's like it's such a weak argument. Yeah, it is. Again, it goes to that faulty understanding of what evolution is, too, because people just think evolution is random. It's not random. It's not. You know, and that's the thing that intelligent design preys on is a faulty understanding of evolution. You know what book is great about this is The Blind Watchmaker. You've read that, I'm sure, right, Lars? I actually haven't. I suspect, actually, I, I know most of what's in it already. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, it's by Richard Dawkins, if I'm not mistaken, yes. right? So, yeah, the, the other thing, Phil, that you touched on is that most intelligent design arguments rely on a false dichotomy between random, as in anything could happen, mm. and designed. When really, the actual thing that is posited by scientists in all of these cases is some combination of random processes where indeed we couldn't predict the outcome and contingency, things that have to happen once we have a given situation. So if, for example, I have a jar full of marbles and I dump it out, it is random which one is going to hit the ground first. But you know what will happen? All of them will hit the ground. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and and that's, that's the same as it is with biochemistry. I am a chemical machine. There are atoms bonding and breaking bonds in my body all the time to make me happen. And there is energy being exchanged from the food that I've eaten, the air that I'm breathing, and the water that I'm drinking to make these things happen. And they essentially have to happen that way. To power the meat machine. That's right. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that you mentioned is the idea that function indicates design. Yeah. And to me, a debunking point of that is, well, what about all the stuff that is shitty function? Yeah. So if you designed it intelligently, then it should work flawlessly for everybody. You shouldn't have cancer. 
because that shouldn't happen if you are intelligently designed. The sun shouldn't give us cancer. Yeah. Yeah. The sun that you created shouldn't give us cancer. I mean, there's there's an innumerable amount of things in the human body that are are flawed. Oh, that's because of the fall. Though. Right. That's because oh, of no, the yeah. And that's what I was going to say. The next thing nature. is like, oh, that's all because of original sin. It's convenient. A non-scientific concept, you know, that you're trying to smash into science. Right. Can I ask a stupid question? No, go go for it. And it's okay. probably not that stupid. Does intelligent design include young earth creationism or is it totally separate? In other words, are all intelligent design advocates accepting of evolution? Ooh, it's complicated. Oh, maybe not a stupid question. It, 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 is, it is a complex question, actually. Young earth creationism borrows many of the same tricks as intelligent design. Basically, anytime an intelligent design advocate says, oh, look at this amazing thing, it couldn't have evolved, young earth creationists will happily jump on that and usually and, and take the same reasoning that, you know, these molecules arrange in such a way that they couldn't have evolved. But some intelligent design advocates, in fact, most of them are, most of the ones who probably proclaim themselves as intelligent design advocates are old earth creationists. They accept the age of the earth and the universe at uh, 4.54 and 13.8 billion years, respectively. And they just say that the things that we see in various organisms had to have been specially created by God, snapping his magic fingers to produce the things that we see. Unfortunately for them, the examples they give are not great, at least from a humans are special standpoint. We mentioned earlier the flagellum found in E. coli. Well, E. coli can make you sick, except if they aren't the ones that are already living in your gut. <laughs> but even worse is Michael Behe, uh, perhaps the biggest name in the intelligent design movement, his book, Edge of Evolution, centers around the drug resistance in the plasmodium organism, which is the parasite that gives you malaria. So God can't be bothered to give me eyes that don't work right unless I get LASIK, <laughs> but he can go ahead and give a special set of four mutations to a plasmodium parasite so that it can keep giving people malaria. Oh, that's, <laughs> wow. That's a double-edged sword right there. Yeah. 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 And you know, like you were saying, Phil, bad design. I try to avoid saying bad design to you, intelligent design advocates, because then they'll often retreat to the ever-present apologist excuse of mysterious ways that God mm. surely had reasons for these that you don't understand. I try right. to think of it in terms of as a human designer, I could do better. You could improve upon it. Right. Yeah. Right. Whether or not it's bad now, I can tell you I could make it better. The right. example yeah. that we've been talking about a couple of times, eyes, all vertebrates that have eyes have the same eye structure. We have a retina that is the part that actually collects the light. Uh, on the back of the eyeball, but the optic nerve, the part that relays that information to the brain has to come through the back of the eyeball and spread out flat over the retina. And so it has to be transparent. And so in that spot where it comes in the back of your eyeball, there is a blind spot where there are in fact, no cells that can pick up light because the optic nerve is there instead. Now, vertebrate brains do a pretty good job of patching that over and presenting to the internal brain, a more or less whole picture of the surroundings but it has to do this by constantly bouncing your eyes around and stitching together a panorama of pictures to make one continuous image. Well, maybe that's the only way you could design eyes. Except you know, it's not because octopuses have, have their eyes. Exactly. <laughs> Cephalopods, uh, they have eyes where the retina comes in uh, that covers the entire back of the eyeball and the optic nerve contacts the back of the eyeball and the retina and receives its signals to the brain that way because they come from lineage that evolved eyes separately. The reason for the structure is just because if you're going to have an organic photon sensor, which is what an eye is, there's only so many ways you can do it and get good focusing and uh, image resolution. So you have cephalopods and vertebrates, both with very similar structures, but they are fundamentally different. And one has a better design than the other. But we, the crowning jewel of God's creation, <laughs> don't have that good design. We have the blind spot. We have the blind spot. Yep. And in fact, the, that uh, design of a lens with a backing structure uh, has evolved at least a couple other times uh, in box jellyfish. And in one of my favorites is the Warwinid uh, unicellular organisms. These organisms have a bunch of symbiotic bacteria that live inside them that are dark and light, respectively. And the light ones, they make a bulge that acts as a lens that focuses it on the dark ones. And this sends a chemical signal inside a single-celled organism to let it know which direction the light is. Holy crap. Yeah, they're really cool. I, uh, we're going to link to that because I don't know anything about that. I want to learn. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely. Cool. Yeah, and another example of this that I know of is the laryngeal nerve, which kind of loops down under the aorta, right? 
and it goes yep. back up to the larynx. And this makes sense because all vertebrates evolve from fish, right? And you're giving me that look. Yeah, like, more, more or less. More or less. Okay, more or less. Yeah, all land vertebrates are descended from something we would call a fish now. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, so that nerve is pretty direct in fish. It goes to the gills, but then it had to kind of loop down as we evolved. Yes. You know, because of that rearrangement of material going from gills to jaws, and from having fins up near the neck all the way down lower to be limbs and having a neck, all these changes in the body structure kept having that nerve continue to route through the heart the way it was. And the heart moved down farther from the head. And I should say, I, I want to be careful. When I say moved, I mean from one generation relative to another. In each organism, the heart mm -hmm. is in its own place. It does move as you're growing, but it's not like an individual organism can evolve. Mm -hmm. I feel like I need to make this clarification a lot because a lot of people think of evolution as metamorphosis and it really isn't. It's not change within an organism. It's change relative between one organism and its ancestors or descendants. And yeah, as this kept rearranging, the nerve that goes from the brain to the, what we use as our voice box, it kept that same circuitous path. And so mm -hmm. giraffes or even worse, the extinct sauropod dinosaurs with the incredibly long necks had this absurdly long uh, laryngeal nerve that makes it take a really long time, relatively speaking, for a signal from their brain to come out as sound from their mouth. So yeah. giraffes do actually make noise. Uh, it was thought for a long time that they didn't. They do, but it's not very loud and it doesn't seem to be very useful in communication because well, it takes them so long to process it. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. So it has to go 15 feet in giraffes. Yeah. But this is what we would expect with evolution. This yes. is an outcome we would expect, but it's not an outcome we would expect with intelligent design. We would not. Yeah. It just seems like biological life is staggeringly complex. It is. And it's really awe-inspiring, really amazing. And it is actually astonishing that all of it arose by evolution, by natural selection. Mm -hmm. But alongside that, all that amazingness is th these like other problems and like parasites mm -hmm. and things that, that could be improved upon. It just seems like intelligent design advocates are focusing on what they see as positive and then completely ignoring anything negative. Right. Yeah. Oh, and not Michael Behe, though. He's happy with the uh, adaptation <laughs> scene in Malaria. Well, good for him. <laughs> yeah. And I should mention, by the way, to his credit, he does recognize the evidence for common ancestry. He just thinks a few parts of biochemistry had to be specially designed, but he still accepts that humans and chimpanzees, for example, do have a common ancestor. He thinks that God had to push it along a little bit, right? Yes. The fact remains that an all-powerful God could have just poofed us into existence. Yep. But intelligent design, if you accept evolution, you have to say that God, instead of poofing us into existence, used evolution as a means to get us here and to get every animal here. But evolution is kind of a cruel process. Well, that's that's theistic evolution, which has a little overlap with intelligent design, as we just mentioned with Michael Oh, okay. What's the, what's the difference? Uh, theistic evolution or evolutionary creation is the idea that Evolutionary theory more or less accurately describes biology as we understand it, but that it in some ineffable way is exhibiting the will of God. That is the stance taken by the Christian group BioLogos. And actually, I usually have no problem recommending BioLogos for their science. They have one of the best primers on evolution that I've seen for people who are interested in learning the basics. So while there is some overlap with intelligent design and God-guided evolution, yeah, the, the intelligent design advocates are stuck with saying, well, God occasionally formed a couple of molecular bonds here and there uh, that otherwise wouldn't have happened. And the theistic evolution or evolutionary creation folks are stuck with saying, well, yeah, evolution is an inefficient and sloppy and from our perspective, cruel process, which means that many billions of organisms had to die painful deaths Yes. Long before there were any humans around to appreciate God, which is apparently the only thing God wants. Also that we could have this species of upright walking ape who have back problems as they age because we had quadrupedal ancestors whose eyes also go out of shape. Sometimes even when we're not very old, I started wearing glasses when I was 12. I started when I was four. So nice. <laughs> oh, I still don't need glasses, guys. Oh, consider yourself lucky. <laughs> you must be intelligently designed. I am. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But somehow that's not evidence of our 
or I should say, as Darwin put it, the stamp of our lowly origin. To the evolutionary creationist, we are still the pinnacle of God's creation, or at least we are the creation with whom God chooses to commune. And to me, they don't mix. Evolution and theology can't mix, and this is another reason why. I, I don't think they can, um, and that's why eventually I had to give up the theology part. Uh, but <laughs> I know many people for whom they don't see a problem. I just don't see how, even when you just think about predation and organisms like like a deer in the woods being mm-hmm. ripped apart limb from limb or uh, maybe an organism isn't as well adapted as its brothers or sisters for the cold and it freezes to death because it didn't have the long-haired allele mm-hmm. that's cruel to me why do i care more about organisms and how yeah. they feel and what they experience than god does yeah well and the, especially bad because according to the bible god does care about the sparrow that falls mm. bullshit but he obviously doesn't <laughs> right <No. laughs> He doesn't care about elementary schoolers. Apparently not. It's clearly not. You know, the, the free will of that gunman, I'm going to assume man, I haven't really read the story yet. It's a man, yeah. Yeah, of course it's a man. Uh, the free will of that gunman is obviously way more important than the long, happy lives of those children and the teacher who died. Yes. And you know all the thoughts and prayers that are going out tonight. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to do a lot of good. Yeah. Yep. And hey, you'll pray to your milk jug, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> 100%. No. I have one in the recycling right now. I just poured out the milk because it was bad. I'm going to get it out and I'm going to pray to that milk jug tonight. To wrap things up, is there anything else that you like really want to say? Yeah. I, the reason why this I'm so passionate about this and what sustains me despite banging my head against young earth creationist stupidity for seven years now is the hope that others can see the light as I did. Learning about reality is so much better than having to say God did it and stopping curiosity right there. The world is an amazing, the universe is an amazing place and we get to be conscious in it. And that to me is way more meaningful than being the pet plaything of the at best indifferent God Yahweh from the Bible. So to me, at least this is sort of my evangelism right? This is me wanting to share the good news of reality with people who are Mm. duped. And one of the reasons why it's so easy to dupe people in America is because we teach science as a bunch of facts to be learned. You know, I'm sure you all had to take a quiz on how photosynthesis works. And I've taken it probably more recently than you have, because as part of my rage learning, I literally signed up for biology classes um, (laughs) a few years ago at the local community college. And I still don't remember how photosynthesis works. I can't describe (laughs) the molecular process because it's just not meaningful to me. I'm not a botanist. I'm not a molecular biologist. I want to be an evolutionary biologist, damn it. And (laughs) damn it. Yes, it's an interesting fact. And my hat's off to the people who discovered it and who use it in uh, many interesting ways to bioengineer plants or to grow better crops. That's awesome. But most people, they learn that once and they forget about it. And when someone tells them, oh, that was intelligently designed, well, hey, that makes sense. It seems like a machine to me. And (laughs) this is because, you know, science started out as the philosophical discipline of natural philosophy. That's what scientists, as we think of them now, were called like until the 1830s. They were natural philosophers. And there is a lot to be said for learning philosophy, how to understand if an idea is any good, much more than learning a few facts about how photosynthesis works. I'd much rather my kids know how to tell if someone tells you this is how photosynthesis works, you should be able to say, how do you know? And if they give a good answer, accept it. And if they don't say, I think that's bullshit. <laughs> mm-hmm. For me, learning how to understand if an idea is true or false is what helped me really kick young earth creationism to the curb and eventually my faith as well, because I realized it does not stand up to any sort of critical thinking. And a lot of this, especially in American evangelical and fundamentalism relies on what I call the doctrine of personal infallibility. It's as far as I know, a large original <laughs> trademark. You heard it here. Yes. Trademark. <laughs> in fact, I usually, I, when I'm, when I'm typing it out, off often insert that character. You should uh, alt zero one, five, three. If you're trying to type it on a keyboard. Um, <laughs> you nice. are full of useless knowledge. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. The thinking behind fundamentalism tends to go something like this, that the Bible is true. I believe the Bible. Therefore, everything I believe is true. And if the Bible is good and teaches good things, then everything I do is good. They don't usually say it out loud this way, of course, but that almost certainly is what undergirds a lot of this thinking where they think that if the Bible says it, or at least if they understand the Bible to say it, then it must be true. And they won't even listen to a counter argument. It doesn't occur to them that they could possibly be wrong. 
And so all the argument in the world isn't going to sway them. For me, you know, it was very jarring to realize that I understood evolution because I wasn't trying to. In fact, I was trying not to, <laughs> but I'm good at picking up on trivia and putting it together. And I realized I did understand it. And I'd rather others not have that experience. I'd rather them be able to come to that conclusion on their own by careful research and actually being willing to say, am I wrong? If I'm wrong, how would I know? Because if you don't know what would make you wrong, how can you ever possibly know if you're right? I think I, I said this in the last one too, and I think it's worth repeating. It's perhaps the foundation of all philosophy is what's known as fallibilism, the possibility that you are wrong. Because if you know that you might be wrong, then you can be less wrong tomorrow. Mm, yes. Yeah. And I, I just want to say one more time, in case you're a creationist who has somehow stumbled across this or a Christian who stumbled across this and is not sure about the whole bad theology thing, I want to say learning about evolution was not what made me lose my faith. It was learning how to know that things are true. Understanding evolution, having been duped about it for so many years, got me the freedom to question these things that I'd been taught as true, but it wasn't evolution. You can accept evolution and be a Christian as we've discussed. It doesn't work for me, but it does for many people. I left my faith because it's not true. And you know, if you think it's true, I'm happy to listen to your argument. I could still be wrong, as I've been saying. I don't think I am. And I've got a lot of good reasons not to think so. But if I'm wrong, I'd rather know now and be less wrong tomorrow. I agree. Well said. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for being here again. Yeah, this was so fun. Yeah, it's super fun. We covered a lot of ground. I, that's really just the tip of the iceberg, to be honest. Like there's so much, yeah. I'm sure that yeah. you, you could, we skipped over a lot. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we should have Lars on like once every three months and call it lectures with Lars. And yeah. He can just hey, like that'd be awesome. ramble about a certain topic. Yeah. Just check in, see what he's pissed off about today in the pseudoscience world. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, before we let you go, do you have anything, places people can find you? We're going to put some in the show notes, but if there's anything specific you want to point out where people can connect with you and pick your brain and talk cosplay or evolution, sure. whatever. You know. <laughs> cosplay. Yeah. If you want to talk cosplay, join the official Dragon Con group. I'm going to be going there again this year. It's a huge sci-fi fantasy convention in Atlanta. Uh, but if you want to talk creationism and epistemology with me, uh, you can find me at the group Answers to Answers in Genesis, where I'm one of the administrators. We try to make it a faith-friendly and friendly faith forum. So, you know, don't go there trying to bash Christians for their beliefs. And if you are a Christian, don't go there trying to bash people who don't have any. We assume people have good reasons for the faith positions that they do or do not hold uh, and talk mainly about the bad science and flawed theology of Answers in Genesis and similar groups. Um, you can also find me, I'm a moderator at the group Deconversion Anonymous. That's the official group of the Graceful Atheist podcast where uh, Phil and I have been a guest. We have a lot of discussion around deconversion there. Again, we try to keep it friendly, not so much Christian bashing, but uh, support for people who have found their way out of faith. Uh, and also I join both of you in the Born Again Again Facebook group. Yeah. If you want to hear more about my story specifically of leaving Young Earth Creations behind, I've been interviewed on the Dapper Dinosaur YouTube channel. But you might want to skip the Q&A portion. It gets really weird. It does get weird. <laughs> really weird. Cool. Well, thanks again uh, for being on and giving us so much time. It's awesome. We'll yeah. uh, definitely look forward to sharing your wisdom with the world. So well, thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks again. Thank you for having me on. It's been a blast. Thanks again for listening and follow us on our social media platforms at Flawed Theology Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And listen to us wherever you find your favorite podcasts and be sure to give us a five-star review. Appreciate it. Thanks, and we'll talk to you next time. Yeah, you can do it all if you want. Well, I'll chime in every once in a while. I don't want to talk too much. I'll just laugh every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that counts for something. So I do best. Right.